My name is David Porter. I am the author of Five Minutes to Live. Thank you so much for being here today and listening to this podcast. Uh, just a few things to, to note. Um, in the description of the podcast, I've got the purchase link if you want to purchase Five Minutes to Live. I've also got my Facebook and Twitter links so you can find me. I'd love to hear from you. I'll interact with you. Um, the, the purpose of this podcast, we are reading through Five Minutes to Live chapter by chapter, releasing a new chapter each week, and I release them on Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m. Central Time. Now, if you're here and you haven't started with the prologue, episode number one, go back, start there, or you're going to be completely lost. Please set the alert notification, whatever that looks like on your podcast of choice, so that when the new episode is released, it alerts you. Now, one other thing, Five Minutes to Live has a lot of footnotes. There are a lot of scientific references and a lot of Bible verses. In each episode, I'll list all of those footnotes so you'll have them. You can go back and research, read about the people, read about the articles, read about the science, and read the Bible verses. Finally, I've got a new book that I've finished writing. It's called 60 Seconds of Silence. It's not out yet, but as soon as it is, I'll go back and list the link so you can purchase it in the description of each episode as well. Now, with that, thanks for being here. Let's get to it. Hey guys, in this chapter we're going to read, there are some events that are rehearsed. These are actual events, and the hurt and pain that are rehearsed are in a fictional sense, a fictional story, but this was a very true event. I've got some links in the footnotes that, that give some background and some history. You'll understand what I'm talking about as, as you listen to the chapter, but I just wanted you to know this, this event that we're going to reference in the first part of this chapter is not a fictional event. It is a true event that happened. Uh, with that, I hope you guys are enjoying this. We have one more chapter after today, and then we'll be finished, and we'll see what happens then. Well, let's get to it. Chapter 28. My daughter was born in January 1972. By the time she was six years old, she was a delightful little girl. She was so sweet and funny and had developed this wonderful personality. Every day when I would return home from work, she would be waiting to have tea with me. I was the king and she was the princess. Every day, like clockwork, I would come home, change into some comfortable clothes. She called it king's clothes. And we would have royal tea with different visiting dignitaries like Mr. Tomato, Fred the Bear and the Monkey Prince, her stuffed animals. She was so thoughtful and sweet and innocent, Kaplan said, eyes misting at the memory. In early March 1978, on a Saturday, a Shabbat, a Sabbath, my wife and I decided that we would take Liat to the beach to play in the sand, having what you would call a field trip. 
My wife knew that it wouldn't be as crowded on the holy day, the day of rest. We were secular, so it being a Sabbath didn't really affect us much at all. Kaplan paused to maintain his composure. My wife and I had a little argument that morning. I had been called into work, and so I had canceled the beach trip. Rebecca said that she was going to take our daughter, Liat, to the beach without me. I say argument, but it was little more than a disagreement and a little disappointment. Liat was sad that I wasn't going, but I told her we would have a tea party after she went to the beach, and that there might be a surprise visitor. To her, it was turning into the best day ever. The beach, a tea party with the king, and a new toy. That little talk, the promise of having a tea party with my princess, is the last memory I have with my daughter. That was on a Saturday morning. Two days earlier, on a Thursday, 13 terrorists boarded a ship leaving from Lebanon and headed toward Tel Aviv. The terrorists' intent was to stop the peace talks being held between the Israeli leadership and the Egyptian leadership. Think about that. These creatures were planning to use terror to stop peace talks. It wasn't like this was a summit of generals planning an invasion, strategizing over how to invade. They were planning, strategizing on how to bring peace to the two nations and the region of this world. Thirteen terrorists left Lebanon. Only eleven arrived on the Israeli shore. After having transferred to Zodiac Crafts, small Lightweight landing boats, they hit some particularly rough seas, and one of the boats capsized, killing two terrorists. I can't help but wish that they had all drowned. Forgive me. Kaplan looked at Jess. She nodded. Because I needed our only car to drive to work, my family left home aboard a bus, mid-morning, headed to the beach. At just about the exact same time, those 11 members of the Palestinian Fedayeen from Fatah landed on the shores of an Israeli beach, 40 miles north of Tel Aviv. They were 40 miles off target because of the rough seas they had encountered. After asking an American photographer for directions and then killing her, murdering her on that beach, the terrorists flagged down a taxi and killed everyone in the car. I sat there in stunned amazement, mouth open, jaw dropped. I had heard this story before, but the truth sounded so different. My stomach sank as I began to see that this was the operation of the martyr Kamal Adwan, the mission Omar's father had led so many years before. Kaplan continued, once they had a mode of transportation, the 11 terrorists squeezed into that taxi and headed south toward their target. From there, they were able to stop a bus, a bus full of families and tourists 
who were headed to the beach on the coastal highway. When I heard the words coastal highway, I immediately knew the rest of this story, Omar's story. He had told me about how brave his father had been, how he and his fellow soldiers had stormed the beach, killing the enemy, how they had fought and captured two enemy buses. Kaplan was still talking as I was trying to remember the rest of what Omar had said. Kaplan continued, These were families, not enemy combatants, not armed soldiers. No, these were women and children going to the beach. The terrorists hijacked the northbound bus and forced the driver to turn and drive back south. The terrorists were still trying to reach their objective, the peace talks, but wanted to hurt as many innocent civilians as possible along the way. I guess the terrorists saw those innocent civilians as enemy combatants, so they began throwing grenades out of the windows and shooting at passing cars on their way to Tel Aviv. Town after town they did this, relentlessly and needlessly killing innocent people. Somewhere along the 30-mile drive to the city, the terrorists were able to stop a second bus and force all of its passengers onto their bus. Now they had over 70 hostages, mostly women and children, trapped on the bus. Kaplan again paused to regain his composure. I wasn't sure how often he talked about this, but now, even 40-plus years later, it affected him. The police did their job as best they could, but they hadn't been trained for a terrorist attack like this. Everything happened so quickly, it was hard for them to react. Several small roadblocks attempted to stop the terror bus, but nothing managed to bring the vehicle and the incident to a close. The weight of the bus and the fear of hurting any of the hostages prevented a full-scale assault. Finally, the police were able to set up a much larger roadblock, spread nails in the road, and bring the hijacked vehicle to a halt. A firefight broke out between the police and the terrorists. The result was that the bus <sighs> caught on fire. We don't know if the terrorists said it intentionally, but what we do know is that the fuel tank erupted. Kaplan paused. Each of the next sentences were labored, each being harder to finish than the one before. Thirty-seven Israelis, including thirteen children, died that day. My wife... Rebecca and my daughter, Liat, were counted among the dead. It came to be known as the Coastal Road Massacre. Time Magazine called it, at the time, the worst terrorist attack in Israel's history. A thing like that will change you. It changed my life forever in more ways than one. Jessica and I sat there 
quietly, reverently, not knowing what to say. I could see tears streaming down Jessica's face. The seconds seemed like hours before Kaplan continued. I think about the terrorists, those men and women to this day. Just like me, they said goodbye to their families, but the terrorists were able to do it on their own terms. I wonder if, on the day before they left their families for good, on that Wednesday, if they spent the day with their children, did they shave their beards so as to blend in with the Israeli population? Did they take their sons or daughters to the park to play? Did they give their children the gift of memories before they went off to die for their beliefs? Would their children follow in their footsteps, grow up to be just like their Abi or Umi, their dads or moms? Jessica and I just sat there crying. Jessica for the pain that her friend and mentor had experienced and kept experiencing each day. I was crying because I was with the son of the man who had carried out these attacks against Dr. Kaplan, his family, and all of Israel. I didn't know how to explain to the man what I knew, so I sat there silently, crying tears of pain. It struck me at that moment how radically different the two men were. One man, Omar Khalid, took his pain and channeled it into creating more pain so that millions would feel that same pain of loss. The other man, Dr. Eli Kaplan, took his pain and used it as fuel to help people to try and keep others from ever feeling the same sadness of loss that he had experienced. Again, we sat for long moments until Dr. Kaplan again spoke. Slightly changing thoughts, Kaplan looked at Jessica with a different, puzzled look on his face. I don't think I ever told you about the first time that I met the Israeli Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, did I, Jessica? He asked. Jessica shook her head and through tears and a runny nose answered, No, you've never mentioned it. I can't believe you've never mentioned it. Believe me, if I ever meet the Prime Minister or the President of the United States, people will definitely hear about it. She pulled out the same kind of travel Kleenex kit I saw her with the first day we met. She handed me a Kleenex, took one for herself, and wiped her tears. I think the both of you will most likely have the opportunity to meet the Prime Minister, the President, and any other leader of the two nations you would like to meet. You have a wonderful reason to meet them. As for me, I guess I wouldn't have a reason to reference our introduction in normal conversation because I try my best to not bring up this part of my life. The Prime Minister called me to his office one day shortly after Rebecca and Liat's deaths and expressed his deepest sympathy for my horrible loss. He had some very eloquent words to say that I don't have the strength to repeat at this moment. They are seared into my heart forever. Kaplan said, I made a decision then, one that would direct the course of my life over the coming decades. I decided that I would no longer stand on the sidelines and wait for the enemy to attack me again. 
No Israeli deserved to ever go through what I had endured. I told Prime Minister Begin that I wanted to donate to Israel and her people my most valuable possession, my best weapon, my mind. By that time, he had been briefed about my background and he saw potential in me. The two of you can tell by looking at me, I'm no soldier, not even back then in my prime, but I threw everything into my scientific research, working hours on end. It was all I had left to live for. After years of exemplary service behind the scenes, working with all the government agencies in this country, the military recognized another opportunity. Because of my potential, my research, my gifts, I was set up as an independent business owner, contractor, scientist, philanthropist in the civilian world. I was in the civilian world, but not really in the civilian world. The change was made with the thought in mind that I would have access to even more information if I was able to communicate through scientific research with the civilian world. I still have connections to the military and to the Mossad. Actually, the lines kind of blur with the different agencies and institutes. I am connected to them all and I funnel information and research to them. It's one of the many reasons why Israel, along with her ally, the United States of America, continued to lead the world in technology and discovery. Dr. Kaplan stood up to stretch his legs and again checked to see if anyone was listening at the door. When he returned, Jessica said, well, that explains how we got connected to the Mossad and my rescue, or really how you got connected with Mossad and we worked with them to rescue Matt. All this time I've known you, all these years I've worked for you. I had no idea who you really worked for. I didn't even have a clue. It's amazing that we have spent all those hours together and you never once even hinted at it. You never even let anything accidentally slip. I'm sorry, dear Jessica. I was under the strictest of orders from people who I would not want to cross to never speak of my relationship with the Mossad to anyone. Only now, because of the incidents over the last week, have I been given permission to tell you some of the backstory. Never in a million years did I think anything we were working on would have had terrorists at our door. Some of the backstory? That's not all of it? I interrupted. Kaplan ignored me and continued his thought. I also need to ask you two for your forgiveness. I told you both a lie, and that is not in my nature. Jessica and I looked at each other confused. I said, Dr. Kaplan, I just met you. There's no way you could have lied to me. I don't know what you told Jessica, but you saved our lives, and I think I speak for both of us when I say you're forgiven. Kaplan said, Thank you, Matthew. Let me explain. I told you that I was too sick to attend your presentation last week, Jessica, where you were going to reveal our findings, uh, your findings. I wasn't too sick in the conventional sense. I didn't have a cold or come down with cancer. 
It was the thought of losing another daughter that nearly killed me. I was orchestrating things behind the scenes, trying to keep you safe. Omar Khalid was one step ahead of us. But that explains why I was in the Humvee that rescued you. I had to be there. I wasn't going to lose you, too. Oh, Eli, you're such a wonderful man. Jessica took his hand in hers and placed her head on his shoulder. And I understand why you never said anything about your family, your loss, any of it. Who would want to relive all that pain? Thank you for sharing with us. Kaplan put his arm around Jessica and we all sat in silence for a few moments until Jessica finally said, But I still don't know why the terrorists even wanted my work. I don't really know who the terrorists are. I added, and Omar, the, the bad one, kept talking about geothermal energy. Jess said she doesn't know anything about that. Do you? Dr. Kaplan nodded. Jessica mentioned that you had been told that. The geothermal energy story was just a cover, a believable way to deceive you, Matthew. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? I half shrugged, half nodded. Both hurt. Dr. Kaplan smiled, realizing my painful dilemma. He continued, Since the beginning, since Israel became a nation, the government has been aware that different Arab governments, neighboring countries, but enemies of Israel, have been funding terrorist factions, supplying them with money, weapons, soldiers, ideas, and training. Really, since day one as a nation, we have been under attack. Israel has worked diligently to protect her people and the land in a peaceful way whenever possible. The military has done well to close the borders, making it harder to smuggle weapons into our nation. It will never be perfect. Terrorists will work hard to get into our country, just like they did when they killed my family. However, with satellites, we can, in many cases, prevent air attacks. Our Iron Dome has been a godsend to prevent inbound rocket attacks. Are you familiar with our Iron Dome? Jessica nodded, having lived in the country for years. I shook my head again, another painful movement, and said, No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Kaplan, the scientist, was back in his element. He said, terrorists continue to try and kill innocent civilians. Again, women and children are the targets of these murderers. A relatively new tactic is to stand just outside of Israel borders and shoot missiles or lob rockets into the country, into our cities. The Iron Dome is a mobile, all-weather air defense system. The system is designed to intercept and destroy short-range rockets and artillery shells fired from distances of 4 kilometers to 70 kilometers away and whose trajectory would take them to a populated area. So, when terrorists, unfriendly countries, or even lone crazies try to shoot a rocket into Israel, a warning sounds and everyone takes cover and the Iron Dome hopefully shoots them out of the sky. 
I was pretty amazed at the technology this country had and equally as amazed at the necessity of it. It was all so sad. Kaplan continued, Our biggest problem now, the gap we have, the gap we've noticed is that we cannot see the terrorist as they tunnel under our borders. There are vast networks of tunnels under our feet where the military weapons and explosives, even enemy combatants, are being brought into our country daily. It's how they got the explosives that ripped the Azraeli Sonoma Tower apart. Our current defense for these tunnels is to fly large surveillance aircraft miles above ground and look for people crawling into or out of holes. Once they are spotted, using limited means, mostly by the naked eye or infrared imaging or heat signatures, we bomb them, killing whoever might be smuggling the weapons or digging the tunnels. But this is a temporary remedy. All the terrorists have to do is dig a new, more well-concealed entrance, and they are back in business. Understand, we can't see them when they're in the tunnels only when they're entering or exiting those tunnels. Okay, I'm following you so far, I said. Good, Matthew, Dr. Kaplan responded and turned towards Jess to continue. Once you had developed your ideas, Jessica, and tested them, I began to see another use for your Genesis machine. Yes, it would have an impact on subterranean mapping, and yes... It would have an impact on science and anthropology. It still will. I realized that your device, with very few modifications, could be used to easily search the earth for these terrorist tunnels. We could fly those same airplanes and simply use your Genesis machine. Instead of looking for people crawling in holes, hoping we get lucky, we could find the actual tunnels and close them completely for good. Or we could find the tunnels and use them to our advantage, to capture the people trying to inflict harm on us. The Iron Dome has been a godsend for airborne explosives. Your Genesis machine will be equally as important for smuggled explosives and tools of terror. This truly is a game-changing technology for the future safety of our nation. Jessica just sat there with a stunned look on her face, trying to speak. She said, I, I wish, Kaplan said, I was under strict orders not to tell you my connection to the Mossad. I wanted to tell you about the implications I was seeing, but couldn't. You understand, don't you? Does it make sense then why I installed the titanium desk and cage for your computer? Do you understand why I implemented all the safety protocols? You don't know how many times I was tempted to break my standing orders not to speak. I am so sorry. I hope you'll find a way to forgive me. We sat in silence for what felt like an eternity. Finally, Jessica leaned over to Dr. Kaplan, kissed him on his cheek, and said, Of course I forgive you. I only wish I would have known so that I wouldn't have been so cavalier about revealing my discoveries. 
I could have revealed my findings in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Not only that, I could have been working on modifications to help you and help the Mossad. Modifications that would help the sweet people of this beautiful country. It makes the Genesis machine that much more special, knowing it will have lasting effects on the people of Israel and will help prevent more attacks. When Jessica and Dr. Kaplan had finished with their moment, I said, I'm still confused. There's something, one part that I still don't understand. Why did the terrorists want the research? Or why did they want the machine? What good would it have done for them? It was twofold, Matthew, Dr. Kaplan said. The first and most obvious reason they wanted the research, the machines, was to keep it out of our hands. If they had the technology and we didn't, we couldn't use it against them. We couldn't disrupt their operations. That's the easy one. Makes sense, I said, trying again to painfully nod. When we raided the airport, when you and Omar Khalid were able to get away in the helicopter, we took several dozen prisoners and scores of valuable intel. I say we like I was in the fight. I wasn't. I was back at Command Central. But anyway, that's how we learned about the second, more sinister reason they wanted the technology. I need to give a little background for context. You may or may not know that Israel actually sits on a major fault line, the Syrian-African fault line to be exact. You're not going to believe this, I interrupted. But when I was at Moho Magnetic Machines, I read a newspaper article about Israel experiencing tremors because it sits on a fault line. It seems like I remember reading that Israel has an earthquake once every 80 to 100 years. Is, is that right? That's right, Kaplan said. The intel that we recovered from the terrorists at the airport suggests that they intended to use the Genesis machine to locate weak points in the Earth's crust along the fault line. The weak points would have been quite easy to find given the nature of the machine. The terrorists planned to plant explosives, the same ones used to blow up our lab, in and around valuable military and civilian targets. They would plant explosives in those weak spots and once they detonated them, it would result in catastrophic earthquakes that would literally erase Israel from the map. Cities would be destroyed in a matter of minutes. Armies would be rendered useless. The death toll would be unfathomable. Anyone left alive would then face an invasion force similar to the one Israel faced in the Six-Day War. Every enemy state would attack at once, but we wouldn't be able to defend ourselves. They would be free to rebuild a Palestinian or Arab or Muslim state on the rubble of the Israeli nation. That's what your actions prevented, Matthew. The nation of Israel is in your debt, will forever be in your debt. I sat there speechless, frozen. Tears filled my eyes and streamed down my face for the second time in a matter of minutes. 
It took moments for me to regain my composure this time. Through tears, I said, Just like Esther, God brought me here for such a time as this. Jessica immediately knew the reference and smiled, tears welling in her eyes. Kaplan looked confused. What are you talking about? You get to be like Esther. I don't understand. Thinking of how to explain this to Dr. Kaplan helped me get my emotions in check. Now I got to be the teacher. In your time of study, you must have learned the story about the origin of Purim, the Jewish holiday, right? I asked Dr. Kaplan. I know the holiday, I really enjoy the holiday, but I don't know how or where it started, he replied. I learned the word Purim means lots in Persian, which is like a type of dice. We wear costumes and get really, really drunk. Right, I said. Let me explain it to you. Purim is a holiday that is celebrated by the Jewish people because God was able to deliver the people of Israel out of the hands of their enemy. They were on the brink of extermination due to... You know what? Let me back up a little bit. Let me back up in the story. Is that okay? Give a little history first. Dr. Kaplan nodded. Please. The people of the nation of Israel have been displaced a number of times through history from the land that we now know as Israel. One of those times, we now call it the Jewish diaspora, might be better known to you as the Babylonian exile, or just as the time of exile from the land of Israel. Kaplan kind of shrugged one of those, I must have heard the term but don't remember anything about it, kind of shrugs. Well, the nation of Israel was captured by a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar, and almost all of her people were relocated to Babylonia. So imagine all or almost all of the people in the country marching from here to Iran. That was basically what took place, a great displacement. So they spent years as captives of the Babylonians. Eventually, years and years later, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire. The Persian king Cyrus the Great came into power. During Cyrus's reign, the Jewish people found favor and grace in the foreign land. They grew in number and in wealth. Eventually, a petition was made of Cyrus for the Jewish people to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple. Cyrus agreed. This was a miracle for sure. He let any Jewish person return to their homeland who wanted to go, and large numbers went. He even sponsored the trip. That virtually guaranteed their safety. However, a large number of the Jewish people were really happy where they were and decided that they had a great life, a great future, safety, and a just leader. So those Jewish people decided to stay in Persia. You with me? Yes, Matthew, I'm following you. Please continue, Kaplan said. Jessica smiled and nodded enthusiastically. One of those, keep going, keep going, nods. Now, let me fast forward a few hundred years. There's a large number of Jewish people living in Persia, but there's a different king 
one who doesn't necessarily have the best or really any relationship with the Jewish people. Being Jewish isn't as readily acceptable as it once was. Jewish people continue to thrive, but they aren't as open about their heritage as they once were. That ancestry is hidden. Anyway, the Persian king at the time, a man named Asarhaus, or however you say it, had a beauty contest of sorts to find the woman he was going to marry. A woman named Esther caught his eye and stole his heart. The king married the beautiful woman, but Esther had a secret, something she hadn't told the ministers, the ones who performed the beauty contest, and she definitely hadn't told the king. Esther was a Jew. I looked at Dr. Kaplan, and I noticed I had his undivided attention. The king had a man named Haman as his prime minister, and Haman was doing everything in his power to keep the king's confidence, grow his lands and his wealth. He was doing the things a good prime minister should, but Haman had a fatal flaw. He wanted to be the center of the king's attention and wanted to be honored and revered by the common people. One man, a Jewish man named Mordecai, refused to bow to the prime minister, and it made Haman so mad he wanted to kill Mordecai. When he saw that it wasn't feasible, Haman hatched a plan to kill all of Mordecai's people. Haman hated the Jewish people because of Mordecai. Here's what he did. Haman told the king that there was a rebel group that was causing a problem in a part of the land that the king controlled. Haman told the king that these people were wealthy beyond measure and should be exterminated. Then their lands and possessions would go into the royal coffers. The king was deceived into thinking that these people were causing a problem in his kingdom, and their extermination was the best solution to solve that problem. The king trusted his advisor and agreed to set forth a royal decree to have those people killed. He just didn't realize Haman was plotting the destruction of an innocent group of people, the children of Israel. I paused while I gathered my thoughts. Dr. Kaplan was completely engaged and said, Please, continue. The decree was given that all Jewish people would be killed, and Haman rolled dice, or lots, called Purim, to determine which day it would be carried out. Queen Esther, living in the safety of the palace, had no idea any of this was going on. Her uncle and legal guardian, the same Jewish man named Mordecai, came to see her, told her of the imminent danger, and begged her to speak to the king on behalf of her people. Mordecai told Esther, Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else, but you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Esther decided to put her life on the line to reveal the king that she was a Jew. And in doing so, she was able to save all of the Jews in the kingdom. God looks after his people. He did it then, and he's done it again. Now. I smiled, concluding my story. Oh, wait! 
I forgot to say that's why the holiday Purim is celebrated in Israel, to celebrate God's deliverance of his people from the hands of Haman. Dr. Kaplan was a little stunned and asked, How do you know about this? How do you celebrate do do you celebrate Purim in America? I said, No, the story is one that is found in my Bible, in the book of Esther. I believe in God and his delivering power. I believed it when I read about Esther, and I believe it now, that God has used me in this manner for such a time as this. Dr. Kaplan turned to Jessica and said, You're right. He is an incredible man of God, a prophet or a sage. I'm glad the two of you have found each other. I'm glad you're happy. That's all I ever wanted for my daughter. Dr. Kaplan, I said, there's one more part to Esther's story. You see, Haman, the evil prime minister, was hanged for his wickedness, for his role in trying to kill the queen's people. He was hanged on the same gallows he had built to kill Mordecai. In my story, the wicked one is Omar Khalid. What happened to him? Dr. Kaplan paused and said, I'm sorry, Matthew. He slipped through our fingers again. He managed to escape in the helicopter that was taken from the airport. He'll turn up somewhere sometime and we'll get him. Until then, we want to keep your whereabouts private and security with you at all times. Before the week is over, you will be a nationally recognized hero. And we can't have terrorists hurting our national heroes. End of chapter 28. If you're still here, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed that reading. If you want to purchase 5 Minutes to Live, the link is in the description below. And you can find my Facebook and Twitter links there as well. Drop me a line. Please subscribe and hit the bell so you know when the next chapter is released. And if you're enjoying this, please share it with your friends and family. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.